welcome to the Presto podcast. Our guest today is Lano Mernier, who's the artistic director of the Vox Luminous Early Music Ensemble. They have a track record of very highly acclaimed recordings, exploring connections within early music. For example, there was the famous Abendmusiken concerts that Buxtehude gave, which seemed to have influenced the young Bach. Longer ago, there was a pair of requiems by Kell and Fuchs that are thought to have helped Mozart shape his own requiem in turn. Hello, welcome Lionel. Hello. Hello, everybody. So Vox Luminous's latest recording is, as it happens, also linked to an extremely well-known composer and also to a large-scale choral work. This time it's connected to Brahms and his Requiem. Brahms, of course, uh, picked and chose a whole bunch of biblical texts to set rather than following the strict Requiem mass itself. And for this album, which is Ein Deutsches Baroque Requiem, Vox Luminous have tracked down Baroque settings of some of the same texts. It's a fascinating and really cool angle from which to explore some repertoire I guess people might not otherwise encounter. Where did this sort of mirroring idea first come from? So it's it's actually a journey of many years. Um, we have to thank COVID, as, as weird as it may sound, because it gave us time to actually realise a project we had uh, in our heads in our libraries, etc. So what happened? Actually, it it dates from quite some many years, uh, starting with Musicalische Exequien by Schütz. Um, this is how our ensemble became more known, especially in the UK, <laughs> the gramophone recording of the year. Uh, and it happens to be, in fact, the first so-called German Requiem. Musicalische Exequien means musical funerals. So it's not called German Requiem, but it's the first time texts were assembled. As you said, this is not a translation of the Requiem, the Latin Requiem in German, but this was the first time so an office had the music composed with a selection of texts. And if you check some of the texts that Schütz used, which was the choice of a prince for... Some of them, like Selig sind die Toten or Dimitrenen, are present in Schütz, but also present in Brahms' Requiem. So this is actually how the discussion came. You know, sometimes you can even see both of them associated in concerts. I've seen that already, the Musikalische Exequien of Schütz and then the, the Brahms' Requiem. So we talked, you know, once about that. Oh, it would be would be nice to have the time one day to actually check in the 17th century, which is the passion of Jérôme Lejeune, the head of Richard Consort label, and me. We both have a passion for this repertoire, uh, him for his label, me for Vox Luminis, and then we happen to be in this label. Then, second time this discussion became much clearer was for the 2017 recording we did, which was dedicated to Martin Luther. That was for the 500 years of the Reformation. Uh, so when we checked a lot of psalms, a lot of music, and we did uh, one CD about the, the period of the year, um, Christmas, etc., New Year, Easter, and then as a second one, some typical German things. So we had the German Mass, which is the Missa Brevis, etc. And then we were missing a couple of pieces, and then we're like, oh, we found two or three motets with the text that Schütz and Brahms used, and we called it Dolce's Requiem, like kind of extract, etc. 
And then after finishing, that was only three pieces. We were, like, we were talking, you know, do, while doing the editing. We meet in, in south of France. We a lot of time have a nice little meal that Jérôme cooks. And then we have a little a glass of wine and dream together. And we were like, oh, have you searched some pieces for our project for Bram? So, yeah. He said, yeah, I have one or two. I said, yeah, me too. We should one day do it. So this was like, you know, left like this. And then COVID happened, as we all know. So we were stuck at home for a couple of months. Uh, I was personally a lot with my family, with my kids, etc. And then we called each other and then he said, okay, now I have extra time. So now I will search. So we search music, the text. So it's, it's quite simple. What you do is writing down the text that Brahms used and trying to find correspondence of it. I helped a bit, but I have to be fair to say that Jérôme did a lot of it, especially editions. So we started finding new music, and that's what, what we were very interested at, was either music hardly ever recorded, maybe once, and especially new music. Then we met, it was, I think, 2021, early 21, when we could not do, when everything was closed again, but the Concertgebouw in Bruges managed to get a protocol for us to come to rehearse with distanciation, where we actually selected some pieces uh, when we had two or three options of music unknown, never edited. So we made a, a quick edition to be able to sing through and select our favorite one. Then it became clear we would not find all the text. Then we started to collect other pieces, uh, which we both loved. For him, one or two that he wanted to record again. I'm thinking about uh, Andreas Scharman, the opening of the CD, of the recording, which he had done once, but he absolutely wanted to do it again. It was a piece he absolutely loved and wanted to have it with the sonority of a big organ. And for example, my personal uh, request was Ich will schweigen of Shine, which I think is an absolute masterwork of Shine. And I was <laughs> trying to find an excuse. <laughs> Uh, for a while to uh, to record it, so I was very happy. And then that, that's, that's how it was. And um, to say the truth, not all the pieces are on the CD because it was too long. So what we did was editing everything and then keeping all the text of Brahms, of course, so that the title of the CD made sense. And then with all what we had left, we listened, tried different order because people might think a CD is done like years in advance, you know, maybe, or before the recording, we know everything, we know all the other. Sometimes yes, but sometimes not. It can become like a little, like a painting, you know, you start <laughs> putting the first touch and then at the end, we arrive with an order, with an amount of pieces, etc., amount of track, amount of minutes on, this, on the recording, which made us happy. And then we were ready to <laughs> release it to people. So here, for instance, is part of one of the pieces that you've used. This is Heinrich Schwemmer's setting of Die Gerechten Seelen sind in Gottes Hand, which in the Brahms, as I guess a lot of people know, is that great big fugal thing over the pedal note.
For some of these texts, you hunted and hunted, but you couldn't find any musical setting of them. In particular, it's the fifth movement, I think, of the Brahms, Traurigkeit, which is just such a lovely text, and it seems so weird. Why do you think nobody had set this before Brahms? Or do you think maybe they did and the settings are lost, or what? That's a very good question. I will not tell you it has never been put in music, because we do not know everything. Our research has limits, I would say, because we search on many in many libraries that have their catalogue online, but we obviously didn't check every library of Europe and ask them specifically for each text. This would be <laughs> something crazy, of course, we searched via computer so we could find things. We had even the help of one musicologist, uh, Remy Clavery, who helped us with Hammerschmidt, our previous recording for HRK. When we called him to say we didn't have the very beginning, Zelis in die Toten die da Leid tragen. And then after some, some weeks, he just wrote, I think I have the solution for you. It's the second sentence of a Shine piece, which you will find as a track to on our CD. So you see, sometimes we got lucky with the musicologist. Now, Number five, so because it's the fifth movement, I think, in, in, in uh, Brahms' Requiem. Yes, sadly, we didn't find it because it's, for me, a very special movement in Brahms' Requiem. Brahms' Requiem is one of these pieces that I would not take away any second of music. This is a soprano solo, the only soprano solo, in fact, and we would have loved to find something we didn't manage as we know, I think Brahms composed the Requiem also in the memory of his mom. Uh, his mom, who was, um, that's a funny story, but I think was many years older actually than his dad. Uh, so she, she died pretty early in the life of Brahms. I think he was 30 or something like this. So the text is, um, you have no traurigkeit, but actually the, um, there is a little insert which is Ich will euch trösten wie eine seine Mutter tröstet, which is There will I comfort as one whom a mother comforts. So for me, it might be actually the most personal moment of the Requiem of Brahms, the most touching. I think it wasn't in the original version or something. And then he decided it needed that movement and, and put that in. Yeah, and for me, it's clear that this is the moment when he thinks about his mom the most, I would say. I mean, when, when you sing this, is this piano. I remember singing it so many times. So in a way, we were like, okay, that's how it is. That's the moment, the most personal. And in a way, the one we can connect the least to it with other texts, if since this is personal. So we decided to do something more personal. And in this case, Jérôme Lejeune, so the head of Richard took one piece he really wanted I really wanted, sorry, to, to record. He wanted it as well. And he had the idea to put, it was, uh, I think it's Shine. Ich will schweigen. Ich will schweigen means um, je vais me taire in French. I will, I will, I will. Uh, keep silent. I will keep silent, exactly. Uh, which I find is, uh, it says it all. <laughs> this is what death, I mean, it's at least what will happen on planet Earth. So to say, you know, whatever you believe about afterlife, whether you're Protestant, Catholic, non-believer, etc. One thing that we can all actually connect to is that the fact that our life on Earth comes to an end and we will be silent. So for me, this is one such a powerful text. I don't know other version of this text. 
So this one's why we thought it was the perfect match. Also, because it's six part, exactly the same distribution as the Musical Eche Exequie and of Schritz. So we could get back to the, to the form. You see, we love to have little connection like this, to, to have the same 12 singers, I mean, the same distribution, just an organ, to go back to our roots, that sound, that Vox Luminis, you know, uh, cultivated for so many years. And actually, sometimes now, when uh, last time we were asked to sing the Musical Eche Exequie, which was, I think, at the Wigmore Hall in London, we, in fact, sang as well the Ich will Schweigen of Shine together with it. So you see, it's finding multiple connection. I think it's a beautiful solution we found. And if one day somebody finds us something from the number five of the Brahms Equiem, we surely would, would include it in our concert version of this program. Actually, I think the Ich will Schweigen, the English version of that, is in one of the Paris songs of farewell, because it's like, became silent and, and something about not opening my mouth. Yeah, possibly. Which have a same kind of, of sort of saying farewell feeling to them. I will, I will look at it for future programs. You see, you just gave me an idea. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the obvious counterpart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, let's, let's have a little bit of that, this thing that you used instead. So this is Ich will schweigen by Johann Hermann Schein. <laughs> Brahms Requiem, of course, is from rather later. It's from the 1860s. Would Brahms have known any of these works? Were things from the 17th century still in, you know, the sacred repertoire of churches, cathedrals, that kind of thing at this point? At the moment when Brahms composed his Requiem, so he was in Vienna, where he did spend a large part of his life. He had stopped actually being the, well, uh, what I could call almost the choir conductor. So he, was, he had a job at the Singverein uh, in Vienna. And that's interesting. What we can know, it's some of the pieces he made them sing. I do not have a full knowledge of all Brahms would have known, um, you know, all what was in his library. Whether any of these pieces he would have known, I like to think yes. Which one? Maybe I would go for Schein, because he had some connection with Leipzig. Schein was Thomas Cantor. Maybe one that I like to think about, <laughs> I would love, is the Wilieblich. Wilieblich in Deine Wohnungen, which is a very special piece, simple, four parts, like Brahms, actually. That's something I would love to think. I don't know, I don't think he knew many of them, but what he for sure knew is Schütz, for example, Schütz, Gabrieli. These are composers that he made even this big Zinkverein. I mean, we are talking about size of 100 singers, maybe more. This was, you know, when, when you do the motets of, of Brahms or the one of Mendelssohn, this is the size of ensembles you would have had. I find it remarkable that Brahms made them sing, uh, I think even Isaac, if my memory is right. So he made them sing Renaissance, he made them sing early Baroque, 
as I said, Gabriel Ischitz made them sing Bach. So it's clear that Brahms had a huge knowledge of this music. Same as Mendelssohn. I always put them together. It's two of my favorite composers. And so what is undeniable, the fact that he knew the Musikalische Exekuren of Schütz, it's sure. He knew many, many things. And what I think is important is that, you know, Vienna was mainly a Catholic city. And is. And it's always interesting. The German Requiem would be more considered as a Protestant Requiem, you know. So I find also wonderful the way he did that there. But it's clear that it's linked. I mean, we were talking about the text before of the number five. This is all from the Bible, so the Martin Luther's Bible, the translation in German. So his knowledge of all the Psalms, of everything that came out of the Reformation, I mean, we are already centuries after, it's clear. And so the knowledge of this music is clear from Brahms. This is for sure what we did completely in our imagination, so not something that Brahms would have heard. But I do think if he would have ever heard this collection of music, he would have enjoyed it. <laughs> That's something I do, I do think. We hear about Mendelssohn doing some big revival of Bach. I can't remember the exact details, but it sounds like this is a similar sort of thing. Brahms sort of keeping that music like more alive and more in fashion than maybe we think it was. Yeah, I mean, the, sometimes the word, I mean, revival might be almost too much. What is for sure is that Mendelssohn, but yes, as we say, Brahms as well, but Mendelssohn, of course, made the first modern performance of the Passion. It's clear that without the help of people like Mendelssohn, Bach wouldn't have probably such a revival. <laughs> you see, I use the word as well, revival. But I think what's important to know is that Bach never died completely. So it, it, he was never... Like, he was obviously, he had a moment when he, he was in a pretty down downhill, you know, hardly much less, less, less played and sang. But he was not, I mean, he was not 100% forgotten, but close to it. So thanks to Mendelssohn, I'm not, I'm not underestimating what he did. I think one uh, thing that Mendelssohn, maybe when we say revival, etc., in what he has been really important is that he made as well the pieces of Bach become concert pieces. So that means first time that people paid money to see a passion concert. This was not anymore uh, Good Friday at the Vespers. I mean, this is really something. So, so that's when it was important. And yes, Mendelssohn and Brahms were two key figures for this redevelopment. Allez, I, will, I will take another word. Next to, of course, the pioneers in the 20th century, such as Gustav Leonhardt, Nicolas Hanoncourt, all these people. And without all these people, Vox Luminis and many other ensembles would not be where they are now. And yes, this recording probably would not exist. Let's hear another one of the motets. This is Shine again, actually. He's having a good time. Uh, this is his setting of Wie lieblich sind deine Wohnungen.
Another work that springs to mind as an example of something that's big and it's choral and it uses hand-picked biblical texts is Handel's Messiah. Now, I just wonder, do you think there's potential for something similar looking earlier? I guess it would have to be the Renaissance. Other settings of those texts. There is that Schutz, ich weiß das, meine Löse liebt. Ich, yes. <laughs> Actually, you even have uh, one also of the uh, Johann Michael Bach, which I absolutely love, and we will call it a choral motetta. Yes, I think I have not yet explored it. I have to confess, we are curious about how it will be received. You know, whether people find it intriguing so that they want to hear it, they want to listen to it on CD. We did it only once on concerts in London and the reception, it was not the full program. <laughs> so it was part of the program. The reception was absolutely marvelous. People were like, wow, this is something new. This is something original. You know, we are, we are looking at new ways always to present our music. And, you know, some, sometimes we go to new space, uh, new presentation, etc. I think this is, for example, one interesting way. It's about retaking old music, even unknown music, reshaping it in something that makes sense, that has a new sense. Because I do think that listeners in our days need to make sense of what they are listening. I think everybody is not hurt by some spirituality in their life to listen. And I think this recording has been a spiritual journey for us by researching music, making sense, recording them, and now offering it to the audience. So that's what we hope. I've seen, for example, projects like this of new kind of Christmas oratorio. You see uh, people doing it with German music. With Messiah, it surely would be a very interesting one to do. And... Uh, you know, when people give me ideas like this, I like to explore them <laughs> when I have free time because I always take time off around New Year's Eve, etc. Christmas, it's a time I reserve for my family, always, my parents, my, my, my children, my partner, etc. This could be something interesting to look at. There is one, you see, they are presenting, I think it's next season, I've seen that in the Zatterdag Matinee in Holland, in Amsterdam, a Dido and Aeneas. This is basically the story of Dido and Aeneas, but written by Graupner. So this is an existing piece. It's not called Dido and Aeneas, by just calling it this way to say the Dido or something of Graupner. Graupner is a composer, wonderful one, but he wrote more than a thousand cantatas. Poor guy, it's hard to go through all of it. But you see, sometimes by just naming, it's not even being marketing in this case. It's finding just one way so that an audience in just two or three words can actually connect to what they may listen to it. I think that's what we did here. A German requiem. That's, that's easy. There's a translation for you, <laughs> Anglo-Saxon people. That's something that speaks to people immediately. They know. This is going to be a requiem text in German. Then they will think, oh, what is in it? Oh, we already catched the interest of people. Here, that example I say, the Dido, the Dido Ananias of Graupner, people will be like, I thought there was only one, only one Dido Ananias, the absolutely masterwork of Purcell. Then people will come and to listen to Graupner. You see, it's even with only simply presenting the music that is in libraries, etc., in a very historical way or anything, you can find a way also to draw interest in the 21st century for the audience. And this is something I, I really hope to do because, you know, we, we won't find major uh, work of one hour, two hours, two hours and a half in libraries. There might be still some hidden, but there is for sure not thousands of them left. 
But little jewels, these little cantatas, little motets, I do believe there is quite still a lot of them. And I really hope uh, this recording will help people first to realize pieces they don't know, that they will like these composers, but also encourage even colleagues of mine to actually go, go to library, try to edit scores. Also students that are now in conservatories to think, hey, you see, we created an ensemble we are 19 years old now, just for so the 20th anniversary is coming next year. When we were students, a lot of us were going through libraries trying to find new pieces. Well, listen, if you create your own ensemble, and if you are lucky enough, because I'm lucky that my ensemble was successful and that many people that are seeing with us more than 10 years, 15 years, listen, you can still keep this passion and while doing some masterwork, which draw audience, and of course you need to do that as well, you can still keep being curious, still dig in libraries and still find and make special projects. And you say, then I get interest and I get to do this podcast, for example. And this is great because then you can tell a story, you can explain what your project is and then, yeah, get people to, to get interested to what you do. And, and I think it's wonderful. And uh, yeah, I, I think this is one of the closest projects um, I will speak a bit like the, you know, a pop singer or rock singers when they each time they release a new album, they say, this is the most personal uh, <laughs> project I've ever done, the closest to me. I don't know if it's the closest to me as a person, but this is the closest to maybe me, the student, the passion, why I did this music, why I created this ensemble. This is clearly... I tried to do as many albums. You see, the rediscovery of Hammerschmidt was a very important for me. The, the Martin Luther... Uh, double CD was very important, but this one is maybe, yeah, the deepest we went, two person, the musicologist Jérôme Lejeune, who is the head of the label, who is our musical father as well. I mean, he's the age of my dad by a six month difference, but he discovered us 15 years ago, has a passion for this music. It's great how two persons that are working for 15 years together still have this passion to put something together, work for years. <laughs> and do this project. I'm, you see, I get excited just telling you. It's, I think I'm very, I'm, it's a mix of being proud and happy to have been able uh, to do this project, really. On a slightly different note, a little while ago, my colleague Catherine was talking to Michael Spires about he's got an album coming up called Contra Tenor. And I think she was, she was surprised, as quite a lot of us were, at him going so far towards Baroque music. That's not quite what we expected. And she was wanted to explore why he'd done that. And it turned out that many years ago, you and he shared a flat together. Shared a house, even. Shared a house. Even a um, house. What was that like? <laughs> Did you work together on, you know, some of this earlier stuff before he, I guess, he's, he started doing much later things. He does a lot of Berlioz and Rossini. But was there a time when you were kind of early music buddies? <laughs> so... We were buddies first. So the story goes, it's funny because it's partly connected to Vox Luminis. So what people ignore, he has even sung uh, Bach cantatas with us many years ago. In 2007, if my memory is good, in the in center of France. So we met with Michael, in fact, a couple of weeks ago in New York. So I, I might finish <laughs> answering about that because we talked about it. So uh, we met at the World Youth Choir. This is a selection of young people between 17 and 26 years old, uh, selected all over the world. And this is how we met. I was selected representing France. He was 
representing the United States. We were in Chicago. At that time, I could not communicate much with him because my English was very, very French, meaning non-existing. But by the end of the month, I could already communicate. I have pictures with him. I was blown away by his voice. Really, I had never heard something like this. At that time, he had basically not had a singing lesson. He was autodidact, completely self-made. So in these choirs, you would sing any type of music. So in fact, the first music Michael and I sang together was Speminalium by Thomas Tallis. You see, we sang contemporary music, we sang gospel, we sang many things together in this choir. We sang again for the 60th birthday of the D-Day in Normandy when we sang again uh, Gesualdo, I think one piece by Gesualdo. We sang 20th century music. We sang a bit of everything. I knew Michael is somebody who is interested in, in anything, really, truly. Uh, then when we lived together, he was living in Vienna at that time. I was living in Holland. We met again and we said both, oh, we want to move back. We want to move. Uh, we would love to live in Belgium. <laughs> and then we say, why don't we search a house together? Then we moved together. This is basically more than 10 years ago now. But this was the start when our both careers were starting to take off. He, he had his first role in La Scala, etc. So I studied, I helped him study his first Matthew Passion by Bach, to answer your question. And I was amazed how uh, we can both learn from each other. What amazed me is the time he spent learning it. Was he doing the, the evangelist? He was doing actually the arias, you know, of the Matthew Passion, which are demanding. Eh? Mm. Ich will bei meinem Jesu is uh, sometimes called a killer. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they're all like that. What I was amazed is that a month in advance, he put it in his voice, you know, studying it like an opera role. And then after some months, I would ask for coaching and even studied it in 440, a semiton higher, you know, to, be, to find it it's easier in 450. was was really, really interesting. And we had a lot of fun. Because what it is to sing early music, first of all, it's singing. It's properly singing. And this is what is amazing with a voice like Michael. He has a technique and an understanding of the voice that is incredible. He's an extremely smart person, so he would understand, and a musician. So I have to tell you that we promised each other when, we, when he moved back to USA, he wanted to go back to his family uh, in Missouri, Springfield. We promised each other we would do a project together next to the Bach cantata we did, which was just a common friend of us that put us together. He just came, sang the aria and sang in the ensemble with us, which was a lot of fun. He came to a couple of our concerts now. And every time he appears, like some singers of the group who don't know I'm friend with him, like so, <gasps> they're just like, can I shake his hand? Can I take a picture? It's really funny because for me, he's just a friend and we, we are totally normal. Now in New York, he came to my concert I was conducting. I would go to see him. So we do have a project with early music, which has nothing to do with contratenor. It's in, uh, I think, three or four years we will try to do it, but we have a very serious project because what I love about Michael is that he, um, of course, he can do anything he wants, but he's, he's somebody who keeps being so interested. And you see now going for the baritenor, now going for the contratenor, he wants to explore his voice, the limit of his unique, the unique material he has. And so there are things I want him to sing with me and while I'm going to probably for example explore in the future Rossini at least the Petite Messe Solennelle which is something trying to find the historical instrument exactly the, the correct one the, to do the correct size of team 12 singers only the, the soloist being in the ensemble this is not even what I would bring Michael I would like to bring him something that nobody has made him sing and then if you find enough people interested we will do it and then 
give some probably some beautiful <laughs> interviews the two of us about what it is to know each other for more than 20 years sometimes not being in touch often it was in fact his birthday uh, two days ago so we were in touch but it's it's special it's special how also to see people you met we met when we were 20 years old nothing and how we both managed to do uh, yeah to do what we love the most we met as kids i mean kids you know young adults <laughs> 20 years old who had passion and what i absolutely love with him is that he still has this passion and i think he sees that with me as well and now we are in a step when we actually observe each other and give advice to each other he's a very precious person i have in my life so there is there is a project coming at some point in the future is that yes there is one yes that is very exciting we cannot we... Well, i realize you, you can't tell me what it is so we talked about it mid-february so it's two months ago and we both want to do it there are already people starting to be interested so i think it will happen and i promise you if it takes place we will talk about it together mm, yeah and with both and with both of us i think michael and me making a, an interview together would be very funny yeah that sounds uh, sounds really cool I'll be, I'll be very excited to see what that is. You've got me very curious now. But for now, uh, thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. So the album Ein Deutsches Barock Requiem with Vox Luminist and Lano Minier is out today. Uh, for listeners in the future, that's April the 14th. It's on CD to download and perchance to stream on the new Presto streaming service. And to play us out, since it is still Easter-ish, Here's the short but delightful Symphonia Und da der Sabbat vergangen war by Thomas Zeller. Mm -hmm.